0: The FT. Hello, you're listening to World Weekly with me, James Blitz. On the show this week, Japan, the aftermath of the devastating earthquake and tsunami and the desperate efforts to avert the meltdown at the nuclear plant at Fukushima Daiichi.
1: There is a risk, I think, that we overlook the scale of the humanitarian crisis that came after this tsunami. And it would certainly be desperately sad if Japanese policymakers were to not put enough effort into getting everything right for the victims of the tsunami.
0: And the continuing unrest in the Middle East.
1: The events in Bahrain
2: are being painted through the prism of regional politics and through fears that Iran is playing a big role in those protests on the ground, and therefore the challenge to the al-Khalifa, the ruling family of Bahrain, was significant.
0: But first to Japan... We're one week on from the earthquake and the tsunami which hit the country last Friday, leaving thousands of people dead. But the devastation caused has been overshadowed by the more pressing emergency in Japan's nuclear plant Fukushima Daiichi in the northeast of the country. The Japanese government is battling to get the plant back under control after a number of explosions following the earthquake. Joining me on the line from Tokyo is the FT's bureau chief, Muir Dickey, and here with me in the studio is Stefan Wagstall, also a former Tokyo bureau chief who knows the country well. Muir, tell us first of all, one week after the tsunami and the problems at the nuclear reactor, what are your general impressions of this enormously complex situation Japan is in?
1: I mean, it is enormously complex. It's multifaceted. And and I've spent the last week rushing between different parts of the extremely devastated uh, northeastern coast uh, and on highways and empty highways and and, uh, packed highways inland. So to put together a simple picture is very difficult. But I think there's no question that this disaster is a really big challenge to Japan economically, socially, politically and that it's going to be very difficult to address the pressing problems like the nuclear power stations and, and the immediate relief effort and, and then the recovery afterwards.
0: In the West, there's been a huge focus on the problems at Fukushima Daiichi for obvious reasons. I mean, any kind of problem with a nuclear plant on that scale is going to worry people enormously around the world and has a huge impact on the nuclear industry worldwide. But is that the right focus, or do you feel that actually... The earthquake itself and the tsunami have in the end ended up killing so many more people than will ever be affected by the nuclear disaster that we might have got our perspective wrong.
1: I think that argument can be made. Like everyone else, my attention is grabbed by reports of uh, possibly lethal uh, radiation, and, and clearly what's happening at the Fukushima plants is going to have ramifications around the world. It's likely to have very deep impact on the nuclear business, which is obviously a key part of the energy mix for the globe and, and connects to things like global warming. So I can't say that the nuclear power station crisis is, is anything other than a really, really important topic, but. But there is a risk, I think, that we overlook the scale of the humanitarian crisis that came after this tsunami. And it would certainly be desperately sad if Japanese policymakers were to not put enough effort into getting everything right for the victims of the tsunami. And hopefully they'll have the capacity to do two things at once.
0: Stefan, listening to that, what point would you want to draw out from, from what you've
3: seen I would agree that the nuclear crisis overshadows the way we're looking at the situation in Japan. But let's not forget the earthquake damage. And let's also bear in mind Chernobyl. Chernobyl killed, and it's a much bigger nuclear disaster even now than Fukushima, although Fukushima, of course, is still uncertain and not finished. So I don't dismiss for one moment the worries that things might take a nasty and indeed deadly turn there. But that said... Chernobyl killed directly less than fifty people. The numbers affected by radiation run into thousands. By comparison, we already have tens of thousands of people who've been killed by the earthquake and the tsunami. Something like twenty five percent of the Japanese population is over sixty or even sixty five. These people are vulnerable and villagers are more likely to be old than because young people move to the cities, Tokyo and Osaka and so on. So The earlier than expected deaths of these people in northern Japan will run into enormous numbers. I think that's worth bearing in mind when we look at um, the human and indeed the economic cost.
0: Muir, coming back to you, people are obviously wondering what is the the long-term impact of this disaster going to be on Japan. And there's a particular concern that Japan has a very high debt-to-GDP level of around 200%. And the question people are asking is, is Japan really going to be able to deal with the recovery that's needed, or is this going to be a body blow now to, to its long-term economic prospects?
1: If you put aside just for the moment the question of uh, state debt then I don't think for a moment that this is a body blow to the Japanese economy. I mean, I think the purely economic effect uh, will be mixed. It's actually going to create demand in an economy where demand has been insufficient. Obviously, a lot of infrastructure will have to be built and repaired, and the short-term effects on business are going to be quite extreme. But I think in the end, the, the effect will probably be smaller than people imagine. But that's predicated on the ability of the government to, to pay for what needs to be done. And at the moment, the only way for the government to pay for it Will be to borrow it, and and that that adds to this already huge GDP load. We've got uh, gross uh, debt to to GDP ratio of about 200% already. The government relies on new debt issuance for more of its revenues than its tax income. And so clearly, this is a very indebted state. Whether or not that's likely to be an immediate problem is a very difficult question. And I think at the moment, the stock of savings in Japan means that Japan does have time both to pay for the reconstruction and investments going to be needed after this disaster and to try and get its economy back on track. But there's no question that it's going to add to the debt burden and add to the risk. It makes it ever more pressing, I suppose, that Japan sets a course back towards fiscal sustainability.
0: Mure, thank you for that and for your reporting for the FT in really difficult circumstances. And Stefan, thank you too. Let's move to the Middle East now, first to Libya and Colonel Gaddafi's continued hold on the country and then to Bahrain, where a state of emergency was declared this week. Joining me in the studio to talk about Libya is David Gardner, the FT's international affairs editor. David, the UN Security Council has passed this vote, this resolution, which allows a pretty wide range of military action on the part of Britain, France, US and others to contain Colonel Gaddafi. Is this the right thing to have happened, or is this the beginning of a slippery slope that's going
4: to end in trouble? Personally, I think it's definitely the right thing to happen, and it's an extremely momentous decision. As you know, it was preceded by a historic vote at the Arab League to call for this, sanction it, and as, as you know, that Arab vote went beyond the call for a, a mere no fly zone uh, and was uh, reflected in the Security Council resolution. That in itself, uh, this alliance, therefore, of Europe, the US and the Arabs behind an agenda broadly of freedom, I think is extremely significant. In practical terms, has it come too late? Well, it's probably, shall we say, a few minutes to midnight for the Libyan revolt. But personally, as I've said to you and twice before on this show, I have never been convinced that Gaddafi has the wherewithal to retake Benghazi and eastern Libya. He has his forces, whose loyalty in some cases is bought, in others is coerced, is not huge. It's much bigger than the rebels, but not huge. It has very long supply lines, and it has made quite a meal of recapturing what, after all, are not big population centres, but oil and gas terminal towns along the road to Benghazi, and he's lost a lot of armour in the process. So it may be the case, if they act quickly, timing and targeting is, of course, all now, that this could be a game-changer.
0: I mean, there's a
4: lot here that is
0: in many ways better than was the situation with Iraq when the decision was taken exactly eight years ago to go in. There's a clear UN Security Council resolution backing action. The support of the Arab League and so the and so the region is behind it. So there's a lot that's right there. The trouble is though, isn't it, that if Gaddafi does hold out, let's suppose there's a stalemate that goes on for a while. That's a real practical possibility here. What happens then? I mean, how long do we actually remain, the US, UK, France, remain engaged in this situation? In particular, there's another issue. There's the ugly phrase regime change that hangs over the whole thing. At the end of the day, these countries are committed to getting Gaddafi out. I mean, when does this thing
4: finish? As you say, I mean, there there, there is a huge difference with Iraq, and I think part of it is in one of those sort of weird mirror images, that containment of Saddam then, which was working but disdained in favour of an unprovoked invasion, is now the solution being advanced by some in the British and US intelligence community to deal with Gaddafi. I, I doubt whether that will stand. Where will it end? Well, the resolution is clear about the prohibition of any ground forces. What that means in practice is that with air support, nevertheless, the Libyan rebels are going to have to fight this one out themselves. But if Gaddafi is going to risk his relatively slender forces, and particularly his armor and his warplanes, in the battle for the East, his wherewithal, as we were saying earlier, is going to diminish even further. And that does present the rebels with the possibility of victory. I grant you, it could go on for some time, but I think then it might go back to the Security Council. Is this man a menace to the region?
0: David, thank you very much indeed. And so on to Bahrain. Joining me from the capital, Manama is Robin Wigglesworth. And on the line in the United Arab Emirates, Simeon Kerr. Robin, if I can come to you first... What is the latest situation with the crackdown by Bahrainian Saudi troops on the Shia majority? What's happening at the moment?
5: There are unconfirmed reports that Saudi Arabian troops have uh, joined in on the, on the crackdown. But So far, uh, all we've seen on the ground here is, is Bahraini troops. Uh, there's quite a few soldiers in clothes and balaclavas obviously look very threatening, but it's uncertain whether they are Saudis or not. There are, obviously, Friday prayers across the country. They've recently ended. There are a few funerals taking place and demonstrations, uh, which the police seem intent on cracking down. There's been a funeral in Ali, which led to clashes, a demonstration in Qadrana, and also another funeral in Sitra.
0: And, Robin, what's your impression going forward? Do you think that the authorities are getting these demonstrations under control? Or do you think there is a risk this is actually going to fan up into something much, much more significant and a serious challenge to the Bahraini authorities?
5: Well, it's a good question. It's, it's the one everybody's asking now. Certainly, things are a lot calmer in the downtown district of Manama, the capital, even though there are tanks and soldiers on the streets. I mean, at least a veneer or normality has returned. I mean, shops are still closed, but people are on the streets. Uh, most of the roadblocks erected by uh, the protesters have been removed. Uh, but clashes are continuing every day and every night in the, the Shia villages outside Manama. There is, obviously, there's a mix now, it seems, of despondence and fear and, uh, and anger and fury. It'd be interesting to see what wins out. I mean, as it stands now, the mainstream uh, opposition the politicians who haven't been arrested yet are calling for peaceful protests, calling for calm. I mean, I just returned from Sheikh Issa Kassim's speech or Friday sermon. Uh, He's the most revered religious figure among the Shia in Bahrain, and he seemed to try to calm people down. When people tried calling for the overthrow of the regime again, he he hushed them, interrupted them. So there seems to be an effort to calm things down somewhat. So it, it is possible that this crackdown, this repression, will work, at least in the short term. But in the long term, you know, the root causes are still there, and people are seething with fury. I mean, even moderate... Uh, Shia that are close to the royal family that work in the government have resigned en masse. And we've seen Shura uh, members of the Majlis, Al-Shura, the unelected Majlis, Al-Shura, have resigned. All the Shia members have resigned. A key government adviser Sheikh has resigned, and the call for every member of his family to resign from the government. Even the newly promoted health minister, Nasr Mahdani, has resigned from the government. A general strike has been called. So this is going to drag on. It's only a question of whether we, we see sort of low-level clashes or whether this suddenly erupts into full-scale violence. That's, uh, that's uh, the, the real question here now, I think.
0: Thank you. Uh, let's go over to Simeon Kerr. Um, Simeon, what's the role which the UAE has been playing in helping the Bahraini and Saudi security forces in putting down these demonstrations?
2: Well, the the UAE position is, yes, they have taken part in coal forces which were sent into Bahrain earlier this week, and they say that it's more of a a policing unit from security forces rather than from the army itself. It's really unclear what exactly they're doing. They certainly haven't been spotted around Bahrain, but people believe that they have been involved in protecting installations and uh, government buildings and and building family palaces more than anything
0: else. And how politically significant is that for the UAE to be participating in operations like that?
2: It's a fairly sensitive issue. The UAE has, especially Abu Dhabi, the capital of the UAE, has always been a full square behind Gulf Arab attempts to isolate Iran. And there's always been a fair amount of cooperation with the United States in terms of concern of Iranians' regional ambitions and also its nuclear program. So, in that respect, certainly the events in Bahrain are being painted through the prism of regional politics and through fears that Iran is playing a big role in those protests on the ground. And therefore, the challenge to the Al Khalifa, the ruling family of Bahrain, was significant. And there is definitely a sense that other Gulf states will come to their help, and that also especially because they're so concerned about the Iranian factor.
0: Simeon, thank you very much indeed. Let me turn once again to David Gardner, who's in the studio with me here in London. Listening to that, this is a very toxic mix that's developing here, this crackdown on the Shia majority, with implications not only for the Shia inside Saudi Arabia in the eastern provinces, but also Iran's role and the potential for Iran to get heavily involved here. I mean, how worried should we be about all this?
4: There's clearly a contradiction, as it were, in the Saudi position. The Saudis, along with the GCC, Voted for the Arab League resolution, which led to the Security Council resolution on the no-fly zone, plus, therefore, for intervention to support rebels against an incumbent regime, at the same time that they were sending armoured columns and troops over the causeway into Bahrain. It's Um, two different faces. Totally. And I think... One wonders whether, to some extent, in voting for the no-fly zone, they wanted political cover for their own intervention, whether they were hoping, indeed, that the fizzling out of, of the Libyan revolt would build a firebreak between the revolutions in North Africa and the Gulf. But I think the, the problem is this, to go back to your original question, I mean, they have taken a situation, a broad-based civic movement, obviously majority Shia, because the majority of Bahrainis are Shia, but a broad-based civic movement in favor of constitutional reform, they've turned a reformist movement into a potentially revolutionary movement. And by bringing in outside forces to enforce that, they are playing with fire. It does rather invite Iran and its proxies, such as Hezbollah, to charge into the Arabian Peninsula, where at present they don't even have a toehold, either in Bahrain. There's no evidence, and never has been, for Iranian involvement in this long, rumbling discontent among the majority of the country. Nor is there in Yemen, but there might be now.
0: What a worrying prospect. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, David. And that's it for this week. My thanks to David Gardner in the studio, Simeon Kerr in the United Arab Emirates, Robin in Bahrain, and also to Stefan Wagstall and Muir Dickey in Japan. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash
5: podcasts.